Empire. You still have to wear white, but everything else about Wimbledon? It's leaping into a modern era. We're using AI to listen to the noise of the crowd. Where are they really excited? Look at the players who are gesticulating. Are they really animated around a particular point? And then using our data trail as well to understand, um, is that a really significant moment in the match? And then we're creating those highlight packages within a couple of minutes of the match completing so that they can distribute that content really, really quickly. That's Sam Seddon from IBM, whose job is to bring the world to center court. This is the Future Sport Podcast. I'm Bram Weinstein. Tennis is booming in India. And of course, when the fortnight begins at Wimbledon worldwide, Sam is going to talk about how the tournament uses technology to reach modern fans while hanging on to those traditions. And later, Fritz Seifs from Limelight Networks is going to join us, and he's working to help you stream everything better. The hard part is getting everything streamlined. But let's start in England, where tennis becomes the focus of the sporting world. Our guest this week is Sam Seddon, who is the client executive for Wimbledon at IBM, which is modernizing one of those age-old sporting events. Hey, Sam, how are you? I'm very good, thank you. Very good. Um, What are you guys doing with Wimbledon that's different this year? This year, as ever, we're trying to move the bar. Um, We've got um, a new progressive uh, web app, which we've developed in conjunction with Wimbledon. Um, They've been doing a lot of research around their, their fan base, and... They know that they've got a huge audience. They've got a, a, an audience in India, for example, that's upwards of about 900 million people that are interested in tennis, and they want to be able to tap into that kind of audience. And they have uh, produced this app to allow fans in areas where there is not much uh, great Wi-Fi, um, where mobile phone connectivity is probably the way that people are going to get onto the Internet um, with this app so that they can download it and still have a fantastic Wimbledon experience. And then we're also using more of our artificial intelligence capabilities in a number of different spaces. Is there a surprise that that part of the world is that interested in the Wimbledon event? Um, I don't think so, no. I mean, uh, Wimbledon, it's seen as an iconic British event, but it, it truly transcends the globe in terms of its interest and appeal. I think partly because of that Britishness. So in countries where there's a particularly long, uh, strong relationship with Britain, whether that's through the English language or whether that's through things like the Commonwealth in India, and, and therefore they've adopted our sports in a way, then no, I think you know, there aren't, you know, there's a few Indian uh, tennis players that have been through the ranks. You know, Leander Pays being obviously a fantastic doubles player recently. But I think they've just got a huge passion for the game uh, in, in, in the round, and Wimbledon is just one of those sporting events that just transcends the globe, I think. Um, What are the generalities you're finding, whatever part of the world the fans are from, and this clearly is the biggest tennis tennis event in the world, um, what are you finding out about the fans who want to interact with Wimbledon? So I think that there's there's a really interesting uh, approach that Wimbledon have got to consider, which is they've got a fan base which is incredibly loyal. And that fan base has grown up with, with Wimbledon and tennis. So depending on what era you're from, you know, you might be a McEnroe Borg fan um, or you might be a fan of the younger players coming through now. Um, so they need to cater for a really broad spread and therefore they need their, um, their technology that they provide to deliver the Wimbledon experience to be relevant to those fans wherever they are and whoever they are. 
So they're pushing an awful lot into the areas of personalization um, so that you can tailor and tune the experience that you have with Wimbledon to be what you want it to be. So we've done a lot of work with them this year on a program called Digital Convergence. How do we help them allow people to sign in to Wimbledon.com using their My Wimbledon program and then tailor and personalize the experience of what they see on their phone and what they're engaging with in terms of content from Wimbledon is exactly what they want when they want it. So are those technologies, is it commonplace for all the, obviously it would be in different languages, but in all the different areas of the world, do you have to tailor to how far forward the technologies are in those nations? Yes. So Wimbledon will, will tailor it on a number of different dimensions. They'll tailor it by channel. So they'll have a particular content strategy and plan for a particular channel. So just because something works well on an app doesn't mean that it's going to work well in social media. And just because it works well in one social media channel doesn't mean it's going to work well in another. And then they've also got to tailor it um, by geography. So that's where they'll um, have a team of specialists who are communicating in that particular geography. Um, or they'll be working in the natural language, so in China, for example, a particular portal in China to um, access and engage that audience. And then they work very hard with their broadcast partners and their other partners in those geographies to activate locally. Um, and then you know, the work that we're doing with them is kind of the bedrock that allows that personalization to happen. It's such a massive challenge. How do you view the idea of making an event like this accessible to the world? So Wimbledon has sort of coined a, a really nice um, turn of phrase this year, which is you know, if, if, you know, if you've been married or you, you put on a really big event for your family, um, you know how much planning and preparation goes into that. So Wimbledon look at the championships as it's like organizing a wedding, except it's got to be the highest quality wedding that there's ever been. You're inviting half a million people. Uh, another 20 million people are going to watch it through a mobile device. Uh, it's got to be perfect for 13 days, and it's got to have 24 by 7 security. That's kind of how we have to think about how we support Wimbledon and how our technologies have to scale up and support Wimbledon. As far as the, the broadcast of the matches, if broadcast is the right word for it any longer, where do you see that going for Wimbledon? Will it be different by region of the world? Will there be uniform technologies that are accepted with the way that we watch tennis? How, how do you see that moving forward? So there's another, a few different dimensions in that. Um, you know, they are, Wimbledon um, are very much around uh, where, where at all possible it's free-to-air. So in the UK, the host broadcaster is a BBC and free-to-air, and that's to get the breadth of, of audience. They want that, that audience to experience and see Wimbledon. So that helps the brand of Wimbledon, and it helps grow an audience. Um, they then will work very closely with all of their geographic partners, so ESPN in North America or whether that's Star in India, and they will work with those partners to make sure that they are really clear about how to communicate the brand, how to present Wimbledon and the championships in the best possible light. So Wimbledon have set up their own broadcast services, Wimbledon Broadcast Services, so they are content capturing from courtside and then delivering the distribution and the TV graphics to allow them to help with the quality and, and the consistency of that distribution around the world. So it's a, a level that they would want. And then they're working with people like IBM, um, with things like artificial intelligence to create highlights for their digital channels so that they can create content incredibly quickly. So we're using AI to listen to the noise of the crowd, where are they really excited, look at the players who are gesticulating, are they really animated around a particular point? 
and then using our data trail as well to understand um, is that a really significant moment in the match and then we're creating those highlight packages within a couple of minutes of the match completing so that they can distribute that content really really quickly um, they're progressing with um, streaming through social media channels so if you're um, qualifying at the moment is being streamed through through their Facebook channel so they're using a number of different channels but their consistent quality theme is what comes through in all of it however that's distributed and then there's the background clear of the deep root of history and all the traditions that go along with presenting Wimbledon so how do you work to marry the technology and not lose what is the aura of, of Wimbledon yeah and um, I think you know, we talk here very much with Wimbledon, work with Wimbledon on you know, tradition and innovation have to coexist and tradition and disruption do coexist. So with the disruption in the, in the media landscape of you know, changing viewing habits um, from the younger generation to an older generation, what's happening with rights models from a sponsorship point of view, the advent of OTT um, broadcasters that are non-traditional broadcasters coming into the market. All of these things are happening and you have to be aware of it. But you, for Wimbledon, they, they focus very much on what's, that, what's their unique selling point. Their USP is Wimbledon and the quality of the location and the beauty of the championships and the supreme athleticism that's happening on the court. So they, whenever they're looking at adopting a new technology, whether that's artificial intelligence or streaming or something, um, the latest mobile capability, they're looking at that not just in terms of it's new so we have to adopt it. They're looking at it in terms of you know, how are we responding to market disruption or indeed do we want to disrupt the market um, and what are the best technologies to solve business challenges that we see that we've got in that, in that context and, and how do we then deploy them. So they're not always going to be the first mover advantage but their focus is always to be the, the best um, uh, mover in terms of adopting anything new. So what are the fans telling you or, or telling the sport, for that matter, that they want more of? I think uh, certainly um, video, um, where and how they want to see video is absolutely up there. Um, the the bite-sized chunks of content um, that allow people to catch up in the way that they want to catch up. So it's a little bit like going down the rabbit warren. It's um, show me something which is going to entice me in, normally with video content or some uh, animation content, and then show me a really easy breadcrumb path to get to the next bit of content that I want to see. And use that as a trail to then allow me to engage maybe more on a standard you know, appointment to view. So who are the fans, who are the matches that I now want to work, go and watch? So you've teased me in with this piece of short form video content. Um, I'll now look at a longer form piece of video content around the player that I'm now starting to adopt for this championships. So now that I can see that they're playing tomorrow, I'm going to sit down, I'm going to watch that game. That's the kind of, we, we want to help nurture people through that path. Um, and then through the segmentation work that Wimbledon have done, they're very clear around, you know, their, their audiences, you know, who are the true tennis, tennis nuts, who are the general sports fans, who are the social fans that are just loving Wimbledon because it's Wimbledon and the event. And they, they're looking to try and produce tailored content types for each one of those fan groups. I haven't heard much of this aspect fall into tennis, and I, I don't know if you know much about it or what the future is for it, but, but do eSports, do they have a role here in the future with an event like Wimbledon or, or World Tennis? Um, it's an interesting one. I mean, eSports obviously is huge, um, and the growth of you know, gaming in general and eSports within gaming is, is massive. You, you can't ignore that it's happening. Um, I think that the, the challenge for Wimbledon is you know, how do we encourage 
people that are in that space that are wanting to follow esports, of which you know millions and hundreds of thousands of people do, how do we encourage them in the same to engage in tennis outside of what, um, all of the other things that are competing for their time? So, you know, whether it's leisure time or whether it's other sports, whether it's esports, Wimbledon are in that competitive landscape, and they've got to acknowledge that. I think that there aren't, you know, if you look at the gaming landscape and esports, there aren't those kind of games that are tennis orientated. You know, those don't exist. You've got NBA 2K, obviously, you've got the NFL games, you've got FIFA. There are a number of sports out there that do have direct parallels in the gaming in gaming environment. Tennis isn't there. It doesn't have one that competes on that level, but it is competing against all of these other things. Um, and I think, you know, we would have a watching brief for IBM Wimbledon on uh, on whether something does come up in that space. Um, but I think in the, in, the, you know, in the nearer term, what we're looking at is how do we encourage people out of their habitual um, areas of interest, whether that's esports or others, and get them involved in tennis and what we're doing. Sam Sutton is the client executive at IBM for the great tennis tournament, Wimbledon. Thank you so much, Sam. Thank you. Up next, Fritz Seifs from Limelight Networks, who is bullish on finding a solution to disruptions and buffering in streaming content. This is the Future Sport Podcast. Our guest this week is Fritz Seifs, the principal architect at Limelight Networks, which is helping us stream our sports better. Hey, Fritz, how are you? I'm doing well, Brad. Thanks for asking. How are you? Great. Um, Limelight, what do you guys do? We are a content delivery network provider, and that's basically a fancy way of saying we help content producing companies get their content from the origination, which could be their cameras, it could be their uh, digital archives, it could be their data center, so forth and so on, to the end user around the globe. And this really involves streaming, right? I mean, that's where we're going here because broadcast companies have been doing this for a very long time. Precisely, right. So it's it's the idea of saying, if you need to reach a global audience, if you need to have pervasive global footprint, how are you going to do that? If you're a league or a, uh, a content producing company, it's just not necessarily feasible for you to go out there and say, we're going to build this massive infrastructure to have a high quality of experience and a durable experience to get our content in front of the fans or get our content in front of the customers. So what these companies do is they come to providers like us to say, we need help. We need your expertise. We need your global presence to get our content from A to B and do it in a flawless manner. Yeah. And that's really what we specialize in. And that's the hard part. Um, streaming sports, obviously, it's not a new idea, but for those of us who, who do use it like myself, there are consistently issues with the stream itself. So let's start there. Why, where are we in the maturation of the technology itself? Well, so that's the interesting uh, question is that it, it's a number of technologies. You know, it's a waltz, for dance, an orchestration. Uh, and, you know, the, the Internet in general was, was never truly designed for this, this use case. Uh, at its core, it's a hostile environment that is not conducive to a high quality of experience or durability. Uh, and overall, there's a large number of factors that could contribute to lag or rebuffer. You know, for example, uh, at the end of the delivery chain, your home ISP could be having a bad day or your home Wi-Fi could be having a bad day. Uh, inversely, at the origination point, it could be a stalled video encoder or latency on the video storage arrays. Uh, so, so ultimately, it's a, it's a tight orchestration between 
content origination and end device consumption. And the goal is to ensure that all pieces in between operate as smoothly and as efficiently as possible. So how do you go about fixing these things? Well, so that's that's where the, the I guess you can call it the, the magic, right? So generally speaking, there's, there's a notion of if it moves, track it, right? So just like in sports and analyzing an athlete's movements, uh, you need to do the same methodical analysis of all the components within your platform and your infrastructure. Uh, and then using that data, you can make an informed decision as to what technology is working and, uh, and what is not. You know, on the origination side, for example, if you're a league, if you're MLB or something like that, like NFL, uh, wherever that content is being produced, you want high throughput, large high throughput networks. Uh, you want fast compute systems that need that are closer to the production edge uh, and to the consumer edge, for that matter. Uh, and then on the consumption side, you need a diversification of networks and technology providers. You know, it's it's technology. It's not magic, and it will break. And it comes down to having that awareness and that ability to shift to another provider uh, to deliver your content as quickly as possible in real time. So it's not putting all of your eggs necessarily in one basket. It's more of saying, I, I am aware and I'm planning for these things to break. I know it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And the, the elegance is when that does happen, do you have the introspection? Do you have the knowledge? And most importantly, do you have the ability to react in real time to limit the disruption or even further take it to the point where there is no disruption? Um, when do you think we'll get to that point where there is no disruption? I think as the we're we're in that pendulum swing, and you know, uh, I always my, my recent example is if you look at ESPN Plus, uh, and they uh, they recently uh, onboarded UFC, and in that single launch they attracted over a half a million subscribers for the first pay per view event. Uh, so I think there's there the pendulum is swinging ultimately to the side of streaming and you know going away from from baseband and your traditional broadcast. I think what that's doing is then causing all of the, the tertiary and ancillary providers to then look at that as a, a market capturing force. So if there wasn't enough capacity from a network standpoint, you have ISPs that are deploying more uh, throughput, higher throughput, lower latency, better capacity at all of their network edges. You have uh, compute providers that are deploying uh, compute nodes at the edge to get it closer uh, to the end consumer and get it closer to the origination point, the content producing. Uh, companies or content producing uh, uh, aspects. So it's not like a single point needs to be uh, improved or it needs to grow. It's more of that we need to come to a, a sort of consensus as an industry and say, this is the actual direction. We believe this is direction as, as an industry as a whole. And therefore, we are going to invest, we are going to build, and we are going to grow our infrastructures and our platforms to support this. And there's been a lot of work underway. You know, if you if you look at the explosion of, of IoT and the explosion of edge computing, uh, networks are just getting faster and faster. It was 10 gigabit, now it's 25 gigabit, uh, 40 gigabit, uh, 100 gigabit. Uh, so there's it's not like there's not enough capacity. The internet will never run out of capacity. It's more of all the interconnected pieces between that content and you on your device sitting in some train or some bar or some cafe trying to consume that content. How optimized are all the pieces in between there? And the market capturing forces, I think, what's going to drive the growth of all those individual pieces to bring more durability 
and a higher quality of experience. So let's stay on that word expectations. Obviously, the content providers want the tech. They want it to work. Um, So what's the balance right now of working with them and their expectation and, of course, the consumer expectation that they're going to have this good viewing experience? Right. So, you know, it's 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 all a game of, you know, how much do you build and when do you build it? And do you build it too late? Therefore, you miss the boat. And, you know, there's a there's another provider or another company or as a content producing company or a sports league, you just can't stream you or you can't stream that that AK video or that VR or AR video. Uh, so, you know, there there's ultimately this this notion of do you always build in a forward leaning posture? Do you invest that CapEx as a technology provider? Uh, to anticipate the growth or, or the further growth of the industry. And I think up until, you know, recently, and recently is, is anywhere between 12 to 24 months, there was a bit of hedging going on uh, from ISPs to CDNs to uh, video uh, manipulation and workflow uh, management companies to say, you know, is this the next thing or is it going to stall? Is it going to fizzle out? And I think it's a resounding no, uh, this is the next thing. This is where it's going. And so the, the companies that are part of this are now in this forward-leaning posture to say, we are going to be ready for you. We are not going to turn you away as a content-producing company or as a sports league. If you want to stream a 4K video and you want to do it at a, a, in a globally converged fashion, we will be able to do that for you because of the investments we've been making in our network and in our technology to make that happen. And we're not alone in that, speaking for Limelight specifically. Uh, all of the, the industry incumbents and titans are following the same model. So I think ultimately what that means is the best viewing experience for the fan or for the customer. They win in the end. Is, is one of the issues the amount of different devices that are being used on the opposite end of the viewing experience? That I would imagine that with there were a lot of TVs that were out there when television, linear television, was the popular method. Still is, I guess, to some degree. And the specs on the televisions were relatively the same, right? I mean, that's relatively the same with all the different companies. And sure, technology was changing the viewing experience, but they were relatively the same. Is the delivery method of all these different devices, is that one of the hurdles here? Uh, that's an interesting question. Very good one. I, I would say the delivery model is the same, but how that device uh, consumes that content uh, and then plays out that content uh, is, is quite different. And the technologies vary depending on which device you're talking about. Um, for instance, if, uh, if you look at MLB.TV, that is on 500 plus different SKUs, you know, everywhere from uh, iPhones and Androids to Roku's and Apple TVs, the connected devices. Uh, and if you look at smart TVs, um, those are an, an interesting breed is that uh, the early days of smart TVs, they had functionality, but they lacked processing and compute power. And so what you would have is this, uh, this sort of jittery, laggy uh, type of experience, not just with the video playback, uh, but also just with navigating the UI. Uh, there's also additional challenges just from a, a technology and development standpoint is that uh, whatever you're developing for an iOS uh, or an Android platform, you can't necessarily and most likely can't do that for something like a Samsung smart TV. Um, there are different coding languages. There are, are different uh, SDKs that need to be uh, followed. Uh, there's uh, different approval processes that you have to go through as, a, as an app creator or as a content producing company to get that, uh, that platform certified. Um, so there's a lot of operational overhead in addition to the technology hurdles 
to get these uh, to get the content to these end devices, these hundreds of end devices. So at the end of the day, sometimes it's just a little bit of uh, you know sacrificing at the altar. You know, we we we're going to deprioritize as a content producing company and as an app. Uh, mobile app producing company, we're going to deprioritize something like smart TVs, and we're going to focus more on iOS or Android. So I think it's a little bit of pick your battle, uh, but ultimately the the idea is to get it on as many devices as possible. But that's traditionally the hurdle, not getting the content to the devices. It's the ingestion of the content yeah. at the device itself. Um, you've mentioned virtual reality a couple of times. Um, at, at what point, are, where are we in that implementation into live stream events? So if you look at, at VR, that, that's an interesting landscape because it's, it's, not, uh, it's taking the same content, but it's just growing it exponentially in terms of size and quality. Um, you know, VR, if you're at a, a say, baseball stadium and uh, you're doing VR and you're, you're trying to do a, you know, 360-degree uh, replay, you know, traditionally uh, some of the, the incumbents like Intel, uh, they had a platform uh, that would allow you to do that, but the the challenge was doing it in a quick enough fashion. You know, if you turn around and tell a fan, yeah, you're going to have this 360-degree replay, uh, but it's not necessarily instant. It's going to be somewhere around four to five minutes for you to get that replay. Uh, so you may have to do that at the end of the inning. Uh, some other companies have stepped up uh, to the plate, no pun intended, uh, to try to trim that uh, trim that down, and some of them have gotten them down into uh, into the the second. Uh, you know, anywhere between five and 10 seconds. So the goal is if you have VR, if you have the content and you have VR, you know, how fast can you process that at the stadium? Uh, the further question is, are you processing it at the stadium? Because now there's a pendulum swift with edge uh, shift with edge computing where you don't have to build these massive infrastructures within the stadium to handle all of that processing power of that VR video. What you can do is just have a large high throughput network at the stadium and push that to an edge computing provider where they can leverage their global footprint to turn around that video or turn around that content within seconds, uh, you know, if not sub-seconds. So I think VR in its, in its essence is fairly mature. We know what it is. We know how to work with it. The, the challenge still, and, and that window is shrinking, but the challenge is how do you do it in a quick enough fashion and how do you get that to an end device where it's actually consumable? Uh, if you talk about VR, you know, the latest iPhones from a processing perspective, processing power perspective, can probably handle that. But if you have a, a you know, fourth generation or third generation iPhone, there, there's probably very little chance for you to be able to absorb a, a VR stream and, and do any kind of fly-throughs or, or typical VR manipulation. So some of it is just uh, one part of the industry catching up with the other part of the industry. Uh, but I think VR as a whole, from a technology standpoint, is somewhat robust and very mature. Um, let, let's talk about one of the big new content plays here, which is gambling. Um, it is still working through a number of jurisdictions, obviously, in, in this country. It's being legalized in some places, slower and quicker in others. Um, give us your sense of, of the gambling space and, and what this means for what you guys are trying to accomplish. Absolutely. Yeah, so, so gambling, it's, it's the, new, uh, the new hot topic, uh, and, and rightly so. Uh, the uh, Supreme Court uh, recently, I think as of 2008, uh, shot down the uh, PAPSTA uh, legislation and left it up to the state uh, to come up with their own legislation. And I think it's just the dominoes falling from there. Uh, most states, if not all of them, are, are, I think are going to have some legislation that allows for, uh, for in-game gambling or, or single-game uh, uh, single uh, waging. The challenge outside of legislation is the technology, because now you're going from this model of, 
Well, typical old school broadcast is you know five to six seconds of latency. And the dig against streaming media with sports has always been, well, you know, it's roughly 15 to 30 seconds of latency, depending on who you are, what you're streaming, and what the, uh, the, the global uh, audience is, what the size is. And so that's always sort of been the knock against it of it's just it's, it's not quick enough. And so now you take betting, uh, real-time betting, which just furthers that need even more. It's no longer about, oh, I'm, I'm down to the five-second range like broadcast, or I've gotten it even lower into the one to three second range. Now you have to get into the sub second range. And this is where it gets really uh, sophisticated and challenging to say, you know, how do we take this environment, this internet that's as hostile as it can be, it's not conducive to these type of workflows. And how do we then turn around and say, we're gonna leverage this hostile environment to then uh, deliver a, a piece of data to you, whether it's audio, video, or, or application data, or a, a combination of all three, and get it to you in under a second. And this is where, uh, you know, CDNs, companies like Limelight, have really invested a lot of time, a lot of uh, uh, effort and technology to be able to say the moment a, a piece of data hits our network and it's ingested in, let's just say, Phoenix, Arizona, and it's played out in Singapore across the world, we're going to guarantee that in under a second. We're going to deliver that to you in 400 milliseconds. And that's the ultimate challenge. This is where we're spending a lot of our, our research and development today. We have a, a substantial amount of telemetry. We have an exquisite amount of telemetry uh, on the internet as a whole, all these globally connected networks. And they jitter. Uh, you know, some days some are having a good day, and other days some are having bad days. And it's having the elegance and sophistication to do a lot of traffic engineering, real-time traffic engineering. Uh, my, my favorite example is Waze. I mean, most people are familiar with Waze. You punch in your address, it tells you which route to take. However, if that route is congested or there's an accident up ahead, it will reroute you. We're essentially doing the same thing with your data, but we're doing it in real time. We're doing it in milliseconds and even down to microseconds to, to alleviate the, the hostile environment that we typically face. And so what that's allowed us to do is turn around and say, if you want to have a real-time gambling platform, what do you have to do? You have to have the audio. You have to have the video. Also, in addition to that, you also have to have this data channel. You have to be able to sync the application data with what the user or the fan is seeing on their screen because they could be placing a bet for uh, an image or a set of you know, poker cards or you know, some stats for, a, for an NFL or baseball player uh, that is you know, five seconds behind, and therefore their wage is completely bust. So it's of paramount importance that we actually keep these things in sync and we're able to deliver to you as absolutely fast as possible and our latest uh, delivery metrics are keeping it at about a half a second, huh. if not sooner. And so what we're doing is leveraging our network to give you that sub-second latency. Uh, I want to get into your background a little bit for a moment. Um, you worked with MLB and their advanced media department known as BAM. Um, I want to start with, here's this age-old sport that got ahead of the curve of the other leagues and all these technologies. How, how did they do that? Well, you know, it, it was... Uh, it was the glint in the eye of Bud Selig years ago, and you know he he came to the the notion that we need to have a, a singular umbrella under uh, MLB. So MLB Advanced Media was was born out of that desire to basically collapse and consolidate all of the uh, the thirty uh, the thirty clubs uh, technology needs, so the websites and you know stadium technology, uh, and then ultimately video streaming. So around two thousand one to two thousand three. Uh, we streamed one of the first baseball games online, and 
at the time, it looked like a matchbook flip. <laughs> it was, <laughs> you know, it had to have been four or five pixels. It, it was horrific quality. Uh, and we went through, you know, different implementations and different cycles of do we buy, do we build, and we ran the gamut on all of them. And ultimately, we came to the decision that we had to build our own. Uh, there's just nobody else out there doing it, doing it at the scale that we need. Uh, and fortunately, we were able to do that because we were doing it while nobody was looking, right? We were this arm within MLB, we were privately funded, uh, and it was somewhat of safe harbor. You know, the fans always came first, and we, we didn't want to have a bad experience for the fans, but if we tripped up once in a while, it wasn't like the world ended. So we had a little bit of a, of a safe harbor in that, in that aspect that we were able to push the envelope. We were able to uh, test, you know, these radical new ideas and new designs. And uh, furthermore, we also realized early on we can't do it alone. We can build our own technology. From the moment, you know, an image or a photon hits a CMOS sensor on a camera at, you know, Shea Stadium or City Field, rather, um, to the point where it gets played out on your desktop, you know, we control the entire pipeline up to the point where it leaves our network. And that's where we started realizing we need to work with companies like Limelight and such to, to take this content and deliver it in a durable fashion. Uh, so we focused on the origination side. We focused on the technology to say, you know, how do we take live video? How do we do it in, a, in a, an efficient and highly performant fashion where it gets ingested into our infrastructure and it gets played out in under a second to companies like Limelight. And we got very good at that throughout the years uh, to the point where other companies started to notice what we were doing and said, hey, you're pretty good at this, this live video thing. You want to do it for us? Uh, and that was the early days of ESPN and then the, uh, the launch of WWE Network uh, and the first uh, pay-per-view event uh, online, which was traditionally always the incumbent uh, broadcast cable industry. Um, so that, that's really where we sort of sharpened our teeth and honed our skills was just focusing on baseball and focusing on the live aspect. And there's this old saying where if you solve for live, you've already solved for VOD, for video on demand. So if you look at YouTube and Netflix and all these other companies that have a, a gargantuan presence and they, they have some of the most sophisticated technology out there, there's, there's no disputing that. They, they are, uh, you know, hallmarks in the industry. However, it's very different to have a video like Game of Thrones that's been pre-produced and cut, edited, and it's been pre-positioned throughout the globe, and then turn around and say, well, now we have to take this event that's originating somewhere in the United States, and we want to play it out globally in a live fashion. So that's where the real challenges come in, is how do you do this with a live event, and how do you do it as quickly and durably as possible? And that's really where we honed our craft and our skill. All right, so I'll leave you with this then, and it's really the big picture question. Since you've worked with the league and you worked with the advanced media department there, and now you're working with a company that works alongside them, um, for me, the fan, five, ten years, explain to me how I'm going to watch sports. <laughs> uh, you know, haptic suits and all. <laughs> uh, I think we're going to see a, a further ingrained uh, technology and user experience. Uh, you know, we, we joke about haptic suits, but, you know, if, 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 you, if you take the chung and cheek out of it, uh, that, that's a real thing, right? If, if, you, if you turn around and say, well, there's already companies out there that are specializing in wearable tech. Right? and the, the IoT, the Internet of Things, and edge computing, I think that's the next frontier. You know, video is just sort of going to follow that. Video and streaming video has sort of set the stage of we want to be able to give the fans or the consumers access to the content whenever they want, wherever they want, as durably as possible. And I think the next evolution to that, in, in addition to video going through its, its own evolution, it's never going to stop. But I think what we're going to do is see all these, these ancillary components start coming into play where – 
you know, you can maybe get a virtual tour of, of Yankee Stadium, you know, whether it's in-game or out-of-game. Uh, you can start seeing uh, AR overlays for, you know, a player's temperature and humidity. Um, you know, there, there's a wealth of data that I think is untapped into that can further build on the overall experience for a fan. Um, if we take a step back from, from MLB itself, you know, you look at f one uh, you know, the amount of telemetry that that sport is capturing every single second of a race is just staggering. And it's not like they don't have the data. It's always been the question of how do we, how do we analyze this data? How do we present this data? And ultimately, how do we make it available to a fan so they could use it? Um, for instance, if, if, if you're watching an F1 game and you say, well, I want to switch cameras. I think that's going to be the next evolution. It's already somewhat here, but being able to look at different perspectives of a stadium and not necessarily what the the um, the team or the stadium or the camera operator wants you to see. So I think it's it's an ultimate direction in putting more control into the fans' hands and giving them more data so they can have a much more immersive experience. And I think edge computing, uh, in a, in addition to AR and VR along with the, the further expansion of, uh, of IoT, is just going to have exponential growth in that space. And I think we'll see things that haven't even been contemplated thus far, especially with sport. Sounds like it. Fritz Seifs is the Principal Architect at Limelight Networks. Thank you so much, Fritz, for all the time. Likewise, it was a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. That will do it for us this week. As always, the future is now. This is the Future Sport Podcast. I'm Bram Weinstein. 